Good morning. You ever have one of those days that you get up and you know everything's going to be wrong? I, uh, I got up this morning. I went to bed at 1.30 and I got up at 3.30. And uh, I said, well, you know, the people want a message today. No, <laughs> Actually, I was done. But uh, I said, I'll, I'll go down and get ready for Wednesday's service. And by the way, let me remind you before I tell you the rest of this. Wednesday, uh, you know, folks, Yun's ought to be here on Wednesday. Uh, you know, we have several different classes for you to go to. We've got classes for men, for women, co-ed classes. But I'm teaching a class also, and I want to promote my class because it's the one I'm familiar with. Uh, we are going to be looking at, for, for the month of July, we're going to be looking at end times. If you're interested in, in end times and what the Bible talks about concerning end times, I would like to invite you to come by. We meet at 6.30, and, uh, and we, we'll finish uh, by midnight. <laughs> we'll finish about 8 o'clock. But uh, please come by, and, and uh, th- we have a co-ed class. Uh, we'll be looking at this. Theologically, it's called eschatology, but for all of us, uh, it is just a study of the, of the last things or end times, the consummation of the world. So hopefully you see you then. Anyway, I, I, I was, we were coming here today, and I was talking to my wife as I'm coming down up 270, and uh, I, I had just had some dumb questions. Today was dumb question day for me. And I said, I says, what do you think Jesus wears in heaven? I said, does he dress in a suit? Of course he does. No. No, but what does he wear? I mean, I said, Patty, what does he wear? And uh, she says, he probably wears a white robe. And I says, eh, maybe. Does he wear that every day? I mean, you don't wear the same shirt every day. And I'm talking like, I'm just like stupid stuff. I'm, I'm going along and, and lo and behold, you know, some, I, I, I have a bad sense of direction. I missed... McDonald Boulevard. <laughs> this is big as can be. I missed it. And I says, Pattis, I'm not familiar with this road I'm on right now. And she says, well, let's take Lindbergh exit. Do you know that you do not have a bridge there? <laughs> I took the exit and I says, I can't go across the highway over here. And then, and then these arrows are... Light traffic lights and cones are all up everywhere. I had no idea where I was at, and I'm following these things. And uh, Patty gets on the phone for this navigational aid, and uh, the lady on a, the other line, I, I think it's just a phony voice, and uh, she says, Sir, I think you're lost. <laughs> I found myself in places like streets I'd never been on before. But we, we did get out. And uh, it was, by the grace of God, <laughs> but it, it has been a wonderful, wonderful morning. And I thought to myself, this is the day the Lord has made, and I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And uh, anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That is a true story, by the way, except for the lady coming online. Says, but uh, that is a, that's a true story. Well, this is, our last, this is our last message in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this is the 16th message from the book of Nehemiah. We're going to end today. And after this, we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to be looking in a book of Romans, some uh, selected passages 
from the book of Romans being a New Testament beginning next, next time. But anyway, if you'll turn with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning at verse 23. Nehemiah 13, verse 23. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. By the way, Ashdod, let me just stop there. Ashdod is, if you're familiar with the, the map of Israel, uh, Ashdod is where Philistia would be. And the people from Ashdod are Philistines. They are the mortal enemies of the Jews. They have been for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, they've been enemies of the Jews since the time they got into, into the promised land. The, the Philistines were there. And from the time of Moses in about 1400 and so B.C. Uh, up until the time of Nehemiah which is about a thousand years later. Uh, they were Israel's mortal enemies. So that's, that's Ashdod. Ammon, Ammon and Moab, the other two places that they talk about, those are the, the nations that were formed by the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. So this is not, this is not friendly territory for the for, for Nehemiah. So anyway, getting back to our verse again. The married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, as for the children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. <clears throat> so I contented with them, and, and uh, contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled off their hair. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused, him, caused even him to sin. <clears throat> Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joiada, uh, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites." Thus I purified them from every foreign and appointed duties for their priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed, at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you will bless this word that has been spoken. And uh, Father, we ask that you would enlighten and illumine our hearts and our minds to understand your word, your truth. In Christ's name, amen. A lot of this passage has to do about marriage. Marriage. Marriage is ordained by God. You find that, by the way, before there was a Mosaic law, before Moses, you'll read in Genesis chapter 1, when God created the heaven and the earth, and God put man and woman on this earth, God ordained marriage before there was even a law given. 
that that, that ordained that ordained uh, uh, union that God had put together was between one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve. So it is, it is an, an, an ordained union, a sanctified relationship through which both bride and groom commit themselves to one another and as believers where Christ is to be the ultimate head of that union. So, folks, think of this. When, when people get married, you have a bride and you have a groom, a man and a woman. That man and woman who come together in marital relationship are to have, as, as in a church setting, you come together as a union of people who have a faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have people, and I've said this before, but let me remind you, we have a a woman who is a a believer, let's say, and a man who is not a believer. And they come together. And I know, I know what people are thinking. I've done this enough years. I know, I've heard the story a thousand times. Pastor, I know he's not a Christian. Pastor, I know she's not a Christian, but I'm going to change him. Good luck with that. About 95% of the time, that never works out. What happens is the believer acts more like the unbeliever than the unbeliever acts like the believer. You're going to, you are, listen. Satan, Satan is the prince of the power of this, of this atmosphere around this world. And there is a tendency for people to to follow a course that pleases them, that has no restrictions for them, that is, we, we use one another in an in in objective way rather than a sanctifying way. It is not good for people of one who is a believer and an unbeliever to come together because I'll guarantee you as sure as there's flesh on the top of my head, I will guarantee you that there is going to be a, a, a disconnect. There's going to be a struggle, a fight between those two because of religious beliefs or the lack of religious belief. But here in Nehemiah chapter 13, we find that unfaithful Israel again had failed to heed God's law concerning a marital relationship between themselves and the people of a heathen pagan culture. They, they, folks, they're just like many of people today in the world. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. And still, even back, way back when, it, it was, it's true today and it's true thousands of years ago. You see somebody that in your mind looks good and that is all that your mind focuses on. Should we not be looking at the heart of the individual as well? But we just kind of look at, you know. Let me, sh- let me share with you from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 and 4. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. 
You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. So as we now look at our, our text for today, we find Nehemiah, who was so zealous. I mean, he had a strong desire to see his people walk before the Lord with the hearts that are purified, that we find in the 23rd verse that Israel has taken for themselves wives from Ashdod, I told you from Philistia, wives from Ammon and from Moab. Not only did this violate God's law in this matter, but also the children that were born out of this this spiritually unlawful union, that these children that were born to the one, one person who was a child of God and the one who wasn't, that the children who were born to this, this merit, marital union that should never have taken place, that those kids could not speak the language of God. They, they could not speak Hebrew. Folks, let me just bring this to where we're at today. Do you know what happens you know what happens when, when we have a, a, a marital union where one's a believer and one is not, and the child that's born, you know what happens to that child? Do you think that that child is going to talk, spiritual talk, Christian talk, church talk? They can give you the batting average of every player on the Cardinals team, perhaps. They can tell you who's going to be the new quarterback for this team or that team or the other team. They can give you all kinds of sports statistics. They can tell you what the weather is going to be like tomorrow, but they cannot tell you what chapter and verse you find, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They, they won't be able to tell you that. We're not speaking the language of God. The language of God is Holy. The language of God gives life to a dead body. The language of God raises us from walking in darkness, now walking in the light with Jesus Christ. We as Christians ought to be speaking to one another in the, in the, in the language of God, God's word. We ought to be sharing God's word. Paul says that we should speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We don't Listen, folks, there is a talk that you as Christians ought to have that is dignified, that is respectful, that is courteous. But we won't find that much in the world today. In in fact, what we find in the world today is is we, we find people demeaning one another because of religious beliefs, because of political beliefs, because of skin color or this or that or the other. Folks, listen, everybody... Everybody should be spoken to with respect and dignity and honor. Everybody. It's God's language. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We should be speaking to people like we love them as God loves them. Listen to what Jesus says in John eight forty seven. He who is of God hears, listen, hears the word of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. 
He's simply saying this, listen, if you are a believer and you read God's word, you understand, you hear God's word, you understand what God's will is for your life, you want to follow that, you want to be, listen, you want to be correct, you want to be correct in your doctrine, you want to be courteous in your, in your actions toward others. He who is of God hears the word of God. But if you don't know God, you don't understand his word. People look at Christianity and say, oh, those Christian people. It's because they do not hear or understand God's word. God's word tells us that we're to love one another. God's word tells us that we're to build up one another. God's word tells us that we're to honor those in authority over us. We're not to condemn nor criticize, but we're to pray for them. We're to lift them up. You don't like, listen, we don't like certain political people. Pray for them. Folks, the issue here is that we have a problem with this person being a Christian, this person not being Christian, this person being a believer, this person not being a believer, and in Nehemiah's time, this person being a chosen child of God, and this person being from a pagan culture. Malachi 2.11 says this, Judah has dealt treacherously and an, ab and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. They were serving a strange god. God says, I don't recognize these people. These are supposed to be my people. Why are you worshiping a strange god? Why would, you bow, why would you bow your knee to that which is of the devil? It's not so much that, that this girl was the daughter of a, of a strange nation. It's, there's nothing wrong with marrying somebody that's from a different nationality or a different country, a different ethnicity. But the problem is more so that she was a daughter of a strange God. It's not where you come from. It's whom you serve. That is the problem. She was trained and reared in the ministry of the ways of a false god. And her loyalty was to that false god. Not to that marriage. Not, not to the god of the, of the Bible. But her, her, her ministry and her loyalty and her dedication was to a god who was an idol. In verse 26 of our text, we read, listen to this from verse 26. It says, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations that were, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all, over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him even to sin. Solomon, next to Jesus Christ, was the wisest person who's ever lived on the face of this earth. However, when it came to marriage... He, on hundreds of occasions, acted like a fool. He had, listen, are you ready for this? 700 wives.
You know, just think, if he had to say, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) 700 wives. And besides this, he had 300 concubines. That's a thousand women. One thousand. Let me read you this from 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 5. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Do you know who Milcom is? Milcom was a god that people worshipped, that they would take their newborn child and burn it. Burn it alive as an offering to this god. Is it not hideous enough that we even have in the world today people who would destroy their children? But even back then, God says, this is detestable to me. You're killing your children. People created in the image of God. You're destroying them as an offering to a God who is detestable in my sight. Even Solomon, with all of his amazing wisdom, was no match for the trap that lies within the veil of marriage when one partner lives a life that is contrary to the way and the will of God. Nehemiah was so outraged at the way that Israel had violated this law of God that he cursed those who had married foreign women. And from this verbal attack, his anger had risen to a physical attack. It tells us in verse 25 that he struck some of them and pulled out their hair. I guess you might call that hands-on ministry. Now, if you're in a pastor search committee here, might I add something? You might read a resume. If you find that in a pastor's resume, you may not be interested in him. That he slaps people and pulls out their hair. That he was, he was mad. He was mad. A righteous indignation. What are you doing? You're, you're, killing, you're killing the next generation of people. Because they're being brought up. They don't even speak the language of God. They don't know God. Is it not much like, is it so much like America today that we have people who are brought up in a home who don't know God? Have no desire to know God. So in verse 20 of our text, we find out that this marriage issue seems to go from bad to worse. It gets worse than this. And and let's look at verse 28. He says, even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sambal the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. You say, well, what does all that mean? Well, let me tell you who these people are. Nehemiah had found out that the high priest, the high priest of the temple, they just built a temple. These are the people that returned from 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They, they, they come back after 70 years of captivity. And they rebuild the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed. And they rebuild the temple. And the, the, the high priest of that, of that temple is a guy by the name of Eliashib. He is the number one priest in all of Israel. 
He's the, he's the top man. But Eliashib had a son, and his son's name is Joyada. That's his son's name. And Joyada, his son, had a son. Okay? That's what he's talking about. Eliashib had a son who had a son. We're talking about Eliashib, the high priest. We're talking about his grandson now. This fella, Eliashib, the high priest, was so off course with his walk with God that he had taken a room in the temple that was supposed to be a place where people would bring their offerings for the Lord. He had cleared that room out and took out what belonged to the Lord. He set it aside and he put in that room this vulgar man, this a, a, a vile man by the name of Tobiah. Tobiah was against Israel. Tobiah hated Israel. Tobiah hated Jerusalem. He didn't want the walls to be built. He didn't want the city to be built. He wanted Jerusalem to be destroyed. But he made a room for Tobiah in the house of God for so, so that Tobiah could have a place to stay. That's who Eliashib is. Well, anyway, his grandson had married a daughter of perhaps the most detestable of all of Israel's enemies at that time. The most detestable man at that time was a fellow by the name of Sanballat. Sanballat and Tobiah were, were, were cohorts together. And both of them wanted to destroy Israel. You'll find out more about him because I don't have the time, but if you want to read about Sanballat, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10, chapter 4 verse 1, chapter 4 verse 7, chapter 4 verse 11, and chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, you read more about Sanballat and his exploits of trying to destroy the Jews. His plan was to fight against Jerusalem and destroy both the city and tear down its walls that had just been built. So this ungodly marital relationship would make God's enemy because Elisha's grandson had married Sanballat's daughter. The high priest's grandson married the worst enemy Israel had. They married his daughter. And Nehemiah says, this, this can't work. God's enemy became Israel's friend. God's enemy. Who is God's enemy today? Satan. When people come together, and there is a union between those two people, and one of them follows God, and the other one says, I don't believe in any God then who is that person worshiping? That child of God has just married a child that follows the will of Satan. Well, preacher, how do you know that? Because the Bible tells us that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. That we are under the influence as a lost person, a person without Christ, you're under the influence of Satan. He is called the prince of the power of the air. And the wrath of God abides, abides on those people who do not trust him, who do not trust Christ. That we're children of disobedience, by nature children of wrath. Listen, folks, 
It's not that you're as bad as you can be, but let me tell you something. You're as bad off as you can be. This, this, be, this began a, a, a problem. This relationship began a problem that would last for hundreds of years. When once we allow for error to be excused and for unbiblical family relationships to be permitted in the church, it may take decades, it may take generations, or it might even take hundreds of years to rectify the situation. Let me tell you why. Eliashib, the high priest, his son, Joida had a son who some commentaries say that his name was Manasseh, but we're not sure about that. But this grandson of Elisha was a Levite priest. He was a priest himself. This guy that married Sambelot's daughter was a priest himself, a Levite priest. And he married Sambelot's daughter. And this young priest was unwilling to let his pagan wife go. When Nehemiah says, let her go. Let her go back to her dad. She says, no, I'm staying with her. So what they did is this young Levite priest took his bride, who's a pagan woman. They, they left Israel and went up to Samaria where Sambalat is at. And Sambalat from Samaria says, I tell you what I'm going to do for you. Because you've been removed from the priesthood in Israel, I'm going to build a temple I'm going to build a temple in Samaria and I'm going to put it on top of a mountain and you are going to be a priest in that temple. And some people say that he was, even became the high priest of that temple. So what has that got to do with us today? There are four things that I want to share with you because what happened there changed the course of history for 450 years. An error, a sin that was committed took 450 years to be dealt with in a person's life. Let me share this with you. Four things I want to share with you. First, to begin with, the name of that mountain in Samaria where the temple was built it's called Mount Gerizim. Anybody ever hear of Mount Gerizim? Mount Gerizim. Second of all, Mount Gerizim is where the woman from John chapter 4 was at. Remember when Jesus goes to Samaria and he says, uh, there's a lady there and he says, uh, you have anything to drink? And she says, why are you a Jew speaking to me a Samaritan? You, know, you should be speaking to us because these two people never got along. The Samaritans is where Sambalat came from. They, they didn't like the Jews. And the Jews didn't like them. And in fact, when the Jews would go from the, from the south to the north up here, they had to pass through Samaria. They'd walk around it just so that they wouldn't have to pass through Samaria. They hated each other. And Jesus walks right in the middle. Listen, right in the middle where a pagan culture is at. And he says, hey, you got any water? And, Jesus, and, then Je and then Jesus says to her, he says, I've got water. I've got living water. Oh, sir, give me some of this water. Give me some of this water. If you give me some, I'll never have to draw water again. 
I will never have to draw water again. Give me some of this living water. And in a sense, Jesus said, sister, you're looking at them. But Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritans go to worship. At this temple that Sanballat built for this Levite priest who's been kicked out of the priesthood. Third, worship is based upon a proper knowledge of who God is. Jesus tells the woman in John chapter 4 and verse 22, you worship what you do not know. He said, lady, you don't know what you're worshiping there. You're going up to this temple. You don't know who your God is. You're worshiping a God that might not even exist. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Why does Jesus say that? He's Jewish. He's God. He says, lady, you're looking at salvation. But she thinks that she's got to climb to the top of this mountain, to this temple, to worship God. Fourth thing. Worship is not to be uh, uh, founded upon ignorance. The Samaritans believed that the God of Israel was the true God, but they believed that he was the only the God of that land. Otherwise, they believed that he was just a local God. He was just a God of that area right there in Samaria. Not the, God of, not the God of the world, not the God of the universe, but just that little hunk of land right there where Mount Gerizim was at. I want to read you something from 2 Kings chapter 17. From verse 29 says, but every nation, this is, they're, talking about, they're talking about Samaria, but every nation still made gods of its own. Every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they lived. Verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. It just simply says this. They worship God, the God that we said that we worship. They worship God, but with him, they worship whatever else, whatever God was out there. How many gods are there? One God. The Bible tells us, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Not a bunch. Don't make a God of your finance. Don't make a God of entertainment. Don't make a God of pleasure. Don't make a God of marriage. Don't make a God of, of uh, whatever else you're going to make a God of, of, of sports or whatever. Don't make a God of those things. There's but one God. You worship him. Don't put other gods along with our God. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Period. God must have the priority. In, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 it says that in all things that he might have the preeminence. In all things. Even your own life. Even your own family. Everything. What, what should be first, first, first in your mind and in your heart? The Lord our God is one and him I will serve. Joshua says... Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One God. From the time of Nehemiah till the time of Jesus. I told you it takes hundreds of years. 
that, that account from Nehemiah was 450 B.C. till the time of Jesus, about 20 or 30 B.C., or A.D. rather. You have over 450 years that transpired in time before that was corrected in the life of that lady. 450 years. The people of Samaria worshiped what they did not know. 450 years. When we as a church allow for a particular tradition or historical idea to say, we're, we're going to do this because great, 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 great granddaddy did this, or great, great, great grandma did Folks, just because it's tradition, because it's history, doesn't make it right. What does the Word of God tell you? I want to ask you this today. My friend, do you worship a God that you do not know? Who or what are you worshiping? What, what are you putting your trust in? Are you putting your trust in a stock market? Good luck with that. What are you putting your trust in today? You putting it into the bank? You putting your trust in your own ability? Or are you worshiping a God who is not a God at all? What are you bending the knee to? Or to whom are you bending a knee? Friends, there's only one true God. And Jesus is the only way to him. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. It's today the day that you will place your trust in the one true God who's able to save you. Let me tell you something, folks. It is the only way, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God. Jesus, fully God, fully man, became a human being. Born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross, was buried, was risen again on the third day, is ascended up to glory. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He's coming again. Folks, and the world is so bad today, He could come anytime. I ask you, are you ready? Are you ready for God to come, for the God of the Bible to come back? To take you where you will spend eternity with him forever. Are you ready for that? You, only can, you can only be ready if you put your trust into Jesus. You need to do that today. Don't say, oh, I got time. I got, preacher, I got time. I'm just a young person. I'm just a young person. I told you, so let me just tell you the story and I'll close with this. My sister, two young kids, I mean, they were just like this, 26 years old. Oh, I got all kinds of time. Two, two young kids, goes out at night, her and her husband went out at night, went, went to a party sometimes with some friends. She died, choked to death on a piece of gum. 
You never would think that a 26-year-old, two young kids, you think, oh, I got, the, I got 50, 60 years ahead of me, 70 years. You, we don't know the day or the hour when we meet the Lord. My friend, you'll either meet him as your Savior and you'll spend eternity with him or you'll meet him as your judge and you'll spend eternity in satanic hell. You today, determine for yourselves, is the God of the Bible the God whom you serve? Who are you worshiping today? Who are you serving? Today, you can change that by putting your trust in Jesus, repenting of your sin, and by faith, receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior.